generally when we think of the Christmas story, we think of Luke chapter 2, and that's certainly a great telling of the Christmas story. We, we also sometimes look to Matthew chapter 1, and occasionally we'll even turn to John chapter 1. But I want you to know that several places in the New Testament, there are beautiful tellings of the Christmas story from different perspectives that highlight different aspects of that. And I want us to focus on perhaps my favorite uh, edition of the Christmas story, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. So let's walk through this passage together. And um, I think we're going to discover some things that will help us to um, decipher the mysteries of Christmas. So Hebrews 2, 14, let's look at just a few first few words of that verse. Since the children have flesh and blood in common, that's you and me, the children, we have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these things. Now, we're going to stop there. I promise we'll finish the verse in a moment. But there are important things to see just in those first few words. Now, by, my Bible says that Jesus shared in those things, flesh and blood, uh, and that's an accurate translation. Uh, your Bible might say uh, that he partook of those things, flesh and blood, that also accurate translation. But I think the word, the English word partook uh, gives us maybe a clearer understanding of exactly what the incarnation is all about. I was looking at that uh, Greek word, metesken, to see how it was used in other places in the New Testament. And I found that it's used three times in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to refer to Christ picking up a piece of bread. He partook of the bread. He didn't have the bread. He reached out. He grasped the bread. And then he did have the bread. He partook of the bread. Now, in this verse, Hebrews 2.14, the emphasis is that Jesus did not have flesh. Jesus has existed eternally from, from eternal past. There was Jesus. Jesus did not have flesh, but the incarnation, Christmas, Jesus partook flesh. Jesus became flesh, as the Bible says in John 1.14. Now, that's important for so many reasons. We call it the incarnation. Uh, for those of us in our church uh, who speak Spanish, and I'm not one of those, uh, but I do know this word, carne means what? Flesh or meat. So if you have carne asada, there's steak in it. That's my favorite Mexican dish, okay? So the incarnation is Jesus who was not flesh, partaking of flesh, being incarnated, and now Jesus, though he is still fully divine, he is still fully God, he is now fully human, he is fully, uh, fully flesh. Uh, the question, though, that, that may come to mind, and this is perhaps a difficult question, is Jesus still flesh? I mean, we all know that Jesus... Uh, became flesh. We all know John 1.14. We all know the Christmas story, the incarnation. That doesn't surprise you. But Jesus became flesh. He partook of flesh. But does he remain flesh? Is he fleshy? Is, he, is Jesus still fully human? 
Do you know the answer? Does Jesus have today skin and a, and liver, a liver, a brain? Is there blood coursing through his veins right now? Uh, does Jesus in heaven have a colon? I don't know why I'm asking that, but, um, but that's curious, right? Is Jesus affected by hormones? Could you measure Jesus' blood pressure today? I wonder what his cholesterol is or his A1C. Well, let me give you the answer to the question. Was Jesus' incarnation permanent? And the answer, the biblical answer, is yes. That may surprise you. But Jesus partook of flesh. He was incarnated. Jesus became flesh, and he's still flesh. He's still flesh. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 that he is still a man. It says in Philippians 3 that he has a body. It says in Acts chapter 1 that his body after the resurrection was familiar to the people. And when he returns, his body will still be familiar uh, to the people who knew him. Jesus was incarnated, became flesh, and is still flesh. Now, why is it important to know that? Well, it's important because I think it drives home the point that the incarnation is real. It's real. It's not pretend. Jesus was not pretending to be a man. It's not some divine magic trick that when the show is over, everything goes back to normal. Jesus became flesh. You see, I think our thoughts about the incarnation are often woefully inaccurate. Uh, We think of Jesus, the incarnation of Jesus, as Jesus putting on a costume, uh, as Jesus uh, putting on uh, some outward appearance in order for him to uh, accomplish a task. If somebody's going to play football, they put on a helmet, shoulder pads, cleats. That doesn't change who they are. Uh, That's just a tool they use. If a surgeon is about to operate, he or she puts on surgical gown, clothes, uh, whatever they're called. Uh, and that doesn't change who that person is, but that's what that person puts on in order to be able to accomplish the task that is before him or before her. Now, that's not at all what the incarnation is. Jesus didn't just put on something. Jesus didn't just make a temporary change. Jesus wasn't pretending. Jesus became flesh. In fact, if Jesus were to ever not be flesh, it would require another miracle that we would call the unincarnation, okay? It's not that Jesus died and went to heaven and now he's no longer flesh. No, Jesus became flesh. And the flesh of Jesus is comprehensive. When it says flesh, it means flesh like our flesh. I mean, 10 fingers, 10 toes, flesh like our flesh. His incarnation was comprehensive in every way except that he did not have our sin nature. Jesus felt pain. Jesus was influenced by testosterone. Jesus was cold. Jesus was hot. Jesus was hungry. He wasn't hangry, but he was hungry. Uh, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. You think Jesus ever caught a cold? You think he ever had athlete's foot? 
He did. He was flesh. He became flesh and his flesh is like our flesh in every way except the sin nature. Now, I want to finish verse 14 uh, and then we'll, we'll move on. But the end of the verse gives us the reason for this and it's important. So, so let's start at the beginning. I want you to see it running all the way through. Verse 14 says, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these things that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death that is the devil. So the implication here is that the only way that Christ could destroy death was the incarnation, he became flesh, and the crucifixion, he died. That'll be important in a moment. Look at verse 15. It says, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he who does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. You know, the Bible says that people have sinned. You've sinned, I've sinned. And the Bible says that some angels have sinned. So the question is, can angels be forgiven? Can an angel be saved? Well, to be forgiven, we need someone like us to pay our penalty for sin. But the Bible very clearly says that Jesus did not come as an angel to pay the penalty for angels' sins. Jesus came as a person to pay the penalty for people's sins. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way. In how many ways? How many ways was he like us? In every way. He didn't just look like us. It wasn't just a skin over a robot. There wasn't just a skin over divinity. No, Jesus had a colon and Jesus had an appendix. Jesus had a heart and blood coursing through his veins. In every way, so that it says he could become a merciful, faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement for the sins of the people. Isn't Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, and we'll get to 18 at the end of the message, isn't that perhaps the greatest telling of the Christmas story? I love this because it tells us what happened. Jesus becomes flesh. And then it tells us why it happened in order to destroy the one who has the power over death. And he did it not for angels, but he did it for us. Now, the question I want to answer this morning, and I'll tell you, I'm pretty excited about this. I am, um, I got real. I, I was on vacation this week, and so it changed my study schedule a little bit. I was here Wednesday and got enough done to turn an outline in uh, for our worship guide. Uh, but I really did my studying yesterday, and I got here early in the morning, and I, I thought I could knock this out pretty quickly because it's a pretty simple message, and it's Christmas, and everybody knows the Christmas story. Jesus, flesh, God, we're finished. Go home. But the more I studied it, the more I... I learned some things I didn't know, and the more I was amazed at the answer to the question that we find right here in Hebrews chapter 2, the answer to the question, why did Jesus have to be born as a baby? I think most Christians understand the incarnation, the flesh. Why did Jesus have to come in the flesh? 
But isn't it odd that Jesus came as a baby? I mean, that almost seems unnecessary. Uh, th- th- that almost seems like God's just showing off. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't even seem helpful to me. A baby can't talk. A baby can't take care of himself. A baby can't walk, can't protect himself. Jesus would have to wait years and years before his ministry really could begin. He was uh, at the mercy of his uh, earthly parents. Uh, he couldn't keep his swaddling clothes clean. I mean, it just seems crazy that Jesus would come as a baby. Why? Why would God do it this way? Well, these verses tell us the answer. Uh, it's an extraordinary thing, but it's an incredible thing. So let me, let me tell you, why does God's salvation involve the birth of a baby? Number one, salvation requires someone to live a life of perfect human obedience. Salvation requires someone to live a life of perfect human obedience. Now, when we talk of salvation, we rightly talk about the death of Christ, the burial of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. That's what we talk about, and we should. But listen, church, there's more to the story. Now, when we tell the story of the gospel, the good news, when we tell the story of Christ, what do we say? That all mankind guilty of sin. And because we're guilty of sin, every one of us deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus, the son of God comes and he dies in our place as a substitute for the penalty that was due to us to forgive all of our sins. And he was victorious over death. And we see that in the fact that he was resurrected on the third day. That's the gospel, right? But there's more to it than that. That telling of the gospel leaves out one key component. Before I tell you what it is, have you ever wondered why the Lord's Supper, these are things that preachers sit around and think about. Have you ever wondered why the Lord's Supper includes bread and the cup? Why both of those things? It seems to me like it would be simpler and more to the point if it just included the cup. We celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're focusing upon the death of Christ. And in the Bible, the picture, the symbol of the death of Christ, the cross, of course, but in a greater way, the symbol of the death of Christ is the blood that was shed and the cup, the juice. Uh, reminds us of that blood. It seems to me like we could do the Lord's Supper with just the cup and not the bread. So why, why the bread? Well, because there's one component missing so often in our telling of the gospel story. What is that missing piece? That Jesus lived a sinless life. I mean, yes, Jesus died on the cross. That's essential. Yes, rose from the grave. That's essential. But it's also essential that Jesus lived a sinless life. Listen to Romans 5, 19. It says, just as through one man's sin, one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also through the one man's obedience or righteousness, your Bible may say, many will be made righteous. 
So Adam sinned, the first man, and consequently, we've all had a sin nature, and we've all sinned. Through one man's sin, uh, destruction, death has come. But now through one man's righteousness. Who's the one man? Jesus. What's the righteousness? He lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life for 30, 33 years. Through one man's righteousness... We can be, we can be righteous. What was Christ's payment for the penalty of our sin? Two things, the blood, but also the life of obedience. Now, let me show you two ways that this is true. First, in the Old Testament, uh, God prescribed certain offerings that people would make. And these offerings, though they seem strange to us, were meant in part to teach the people, the Hebrew people, uh, some important truths about God and about salvation. Now, one of the offerings that they would engage in was taking a sheep that would be slaughtered and its blood spread on the altar. And so this was a picture of the fact that they were guilty of sin and, and blood had to be shed uh, was a foreshadow of what Jesus would do. But let me ask you, what kind of sheep did they bring? Was it just any old sheep? No, it was a spotless lamb. What did the spotless part of that mean? Well, it's a reminder of Not just the death of Christ, the lamb being slain points to that, but it's a reminder that Christ lived a spotless, pure, righteous life. Hebrews 9.14 says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God? Jesus is the spotless lamb. Jesus offering to God for us is more than just his blood. Jesus also offered his perfect life and his sacrificial death. So Jesus died uh, at about age 33, uh, give or take a year or two. Uh, That's a full life. Uh, for, for them in that day, in that region of the world, lifespan, expected lifespan for a man, uh, 35 years. And so 33, that's a pretty full life. Jesus lived a perfect life, a full life. And in that full life, he lived every day without sin. And in that full life, he honored the father every single moment without compromise. So why Does salvation require the birth of a baby? Christ's death on the cross was valuable exactly because it was preceded by a life of righteousness. Does that make sense? Uh, There were easier, there could have been easier and far less messy ways for Christ to have died for our sins. What if Christ as a baby would have been killed by Herod who tried to kill him and others? 
And Jesus could have just died as a baby. Wouldn't that have been easier? I mean, nobody's for the death of a baby, but Jesus could have avoided all those years of living with all of those difficulties. Why didn't Jesus just die as a baby? Or, or, or what, if, what if Jesus would have been incarnated? What if he would have become flesh just 10 seconds before the crucifixion? I mean, why did he have to live all of those years? Well, God did this baby long life agonizing death thing for a reason. Through this, Christ offered something to God that we couldn't offer. He offered a sinless life and a substitutionary death. Salvation requires someone to live a life of perfect human obedience. And so Jesus had to be born and had to live year after year after year a life of righteousness and then die a death on the cross. Now, there's a second reason why we know that this is true. Now, this reason's a little more advanced. This is AP Christmas. You know what that means? Uh, this is grad level Christmas, but I, I think you can handle it. The death of Christ on our behalf satisfies the penalty of sin. Now, think about that. We already know this. Christ died and his death is enough to satisfy the debt I owe and you owe for our sins. But what does the death of Christ really get for us? What do we get from the death of Christ? We get forgiveness, which is good. We need forgiveness. We get forgiveness now listen, but we don't get righteousness. Uh, let me explain it this way. And this is a very imperfect illustration, but perhaps it'll help you understand. If you are buying a house, you have a 30-year mortgage, you're paying $1,000 a month to the local bank, but you don't have any money. You lose your job. You don't have money. You don't have money coming in. There's no prospect for a job. And so now you've gotten six months behind on your house payment. That's not a good thing. And so the bank uh, is about to foreclose and you're about to be homeless. And right before they foreclose, because you're six months in arrears, you owe six months, $6,000. That's how much you owe past due. But just before they foreclose, bank officer, loan officer calls and says, we've decided that we're going to forgive those six months past you bills. We're going to bring you current, okay? Now, is that a good thing for you? Yes. Your current, your past due bills have been forgiven, but it doesn't really help you because of, of why? What reason? Well, because you don't have any money and you're not going to be able to finish paying for the house. Okay? They've forgiven the past, but, but, there is a, but you still haven't paid for the house. So when Christ died, that was enough, essentially, to get us back to square one. Now, certainly, Christ's forgiveness, past, present, and future. No question about that. Christ's sacrifice brings forgiveness over all sins, past, present, and future. But that act alone doesn't provide righteousness. 
It's still, we still haven't lived a righteous life. What it does is it really takes us back to Eden, right? So Adam and Eve standing before God before they sinned, they're sinless. They have, there's no sin hanging over them, but they haven't lived a life of righteousness. So what has Christ done for us? Being born as a baby, living 33 years or however many years, how is that valuable to us? Because Christ was living for us. Christ lived a life of righteousness for us. Christ died for me. Thankful for that. Christ also lived for me. Isn't that good news? Last week I shared with you about early in my ministry, I, I'd gone back and looked at a message I'd preached about Mary and a Christmas message to a church a bunch of years ago when I had hair. And um, the message was, was poor. It was not theologically uh, helpful. Uh, and that's probably being generous. Uh, let me tell you about another uh, passage that I've gotten wrong in preaching. And this goes back a few more years. This was back when I was a youth minister that I, that I got this so wrong. Uh, but the passage is in Mark chapter 1. And uh, it's the story of Jesus being baptized. So Jesus is baptized. And when he comes out of the water, uh, God the Father speaks audibly. Mark 1.11 says, the voice from heaven said, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So you know how I preached that when I was a youth minister a bunch of years ago? Now, we've got a youth minister who knows the Bible much better than I did, so you don't have to worry about him. But, uh, but a bunch of years ago, what I would do is I would, I would uh, read that verse and I would tell those young people, you need to live the kind of life that one day... One day, if you will live the straight and narrow, if you will honor God, if you will follow the rules, if you'll do all of the things, check all of the boxes, one day perhaps God will say to you, well done. Perhaps one day God will say to you, with you, son, I'm well pleased. Now listen, church, that's, uh, that's not the application of that passage. Um, the jury is not still out on whether or not my life is pleasing to the Lord. God is well pleased with me. Now you might say, well, how, why would you say that pastor? That God is well pleased with you. I, I say that because I have lived a life of perfect holiness. I have lived a life of unwavering obedience in exact faithfulness. Now, those of you who know me well are thinking, when did you do that? Okay. <laughs> I'll tell you when I did it. When Jesus did it for me. Jesus died for me. Jesus also lived for me. There is nothing I can do today to make God love and accept me more. You know why? Because Jesus has already done it all. And God could not love me and accept me more than he does right now. And when God looks at me today, he says, Noel, my son, I'm well pleased with you.
not because I've had a particularly good week, but because Christ lived a perfect, sinless life for me. Why did Jesus need to be born as a baby? So he could live a sinless life for us. Now, I'm out of time and I have two more reasons, so you're going to have to listen fast. Uh, Number two, only a person can die for people. Uh, It's important to understand that Jesus is fully human, fully divine. Uh, But what we're focusing on here is uh, is the humanity of Christ, Uh, not not to uh, diminish at all the, uh, the divinity of Christ. But if you look back at Hebrews 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared these things so that his death might destroy the one holding the power of death. Uh, Why did Jesus become flesh and blood? So that his death might destroy our death. Uh, You see, in, in, in this passage, in Hebrews 2, this great Christmas passage, Jesus had to be a person. He had to be flesh so that he could die for people. He could die for flesh. Now, why is that? Well, let's look at the options. Could the death of an animal had been enough to sacrifice to pay for the penalty of our sins? No, because I don't have the same value as an animal. An animal is not created in the image of God, and I am. And the Bible says in Hebrews 10, 4, it's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls, bulls and goats, to take away our sins. Well, could the death of an angel, could the death of an angel atone for my sins? No, because I'm not an angel. I've been created in the image of God. The Bible says in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, you are redeemed from your empty way of life, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished, the spotless lamb. Why did Christ have to be born so that flesh could die for flesh? And then the third thing quickly, because sympathy depends upon common experiences. Jesus had to be born as a baby. He had to live a life, full life, because sympathy depends upon common experiences. Um, look, at, look at verse 18. We didn't read it earlier because I wanted to save it for now. Hebrews 2.18, since he himself has suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. Uh, what this tells us is that no matter what temptation you have faced, no matter what temptation you're facing today, no matter what broken heart you feel, no matter what rejection has pierced you, no matter what disappointment is crushing you, no matter the loss, the discouragement, the pain, the hopelessness, or the betrayal, Jesus has been where you are. He was tempted He went through trials. This includes both temptations to sin and trials of difficulty. Jesus has been through every trial that you have been through. Let me read Hebrews 4, chapter 15. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. When we go through hardships... We gain strength when we lean on someone who has gone through the same hardships. Common experiences make sympathy effective. My mom died a few months ago. And the greatest 
encouragement, sympathy that I've received is when other people who have been through the same thing have reached out and said kind words. Now, I appreciate all the kind words I've received. But sympathy becomes effective when there are common experiences. Jesus, Jesus faced every temptation, every loss, every broken heart, every disappointment. There are common experiences. And if you will go to him, you will find a sympathetic high priest. And that sympathy will give you strength. Why did Jesus have to be born as a baby? Why couldn't he just have come right before the crucifixion as an adult? Because he needed to live a life where he gained the experiences, the hardships that you and I face so that his sympathy would be effective. Can I tell you about a time when this became real to me? Sometimes I think I say too much. Um, But about 15 years ago, I was struggling with some persistent sin, with a particular persistent sin. Um, if, uh, if you thought your pastor never sinned, <laughs> um, yeah, you're at the wrong church maybe. Uh, but 15 years ago, it was just something that um, I was struggling with. And it was hard. And um, I felt so much shame. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but I, I felt so much shame it was hard to pray. You know what I'm talking about? I just was so broken over my sin. I, it was hard to pray. I mean, I know all the theological things that, you know, you, you'll come tell me. But it was just hard to pray. I was embarrassed. I was filled with shame. Well, I shared this with a friend of mine. His name is Eric, Eric Chico. And um, he shared with me a verse that I've read a million times. But there's a word in this verse I have never noticed or never paid attention to. Let me read the verse. Hebrews 12, 2. This will be familiar to many of you. Keep your eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see the word there? Shame. Jesus despised the shame now, I always just assumed, because I really never paid close attention to this, that the shame that Jesus is talking about there is uh, the shame of being stripped naked on the cross, and, and that would be humiliating. But if you look at the verse, that doesn't really fit the consequence, I mean, the context. It's not an embarrassment thing. Eric My friend pointed out to me that he believed, and I believe Eric is right, that the shame that Jesus despised, and by the way, despised, there's no exaggeration in the Bible. Jesus despised the shame. The shame that Jesus despised was the shame of coming before his heavenly father, shouldering the weight of all of our sin. Jesus took, when he was on the cross, the weight of all of our sin. He really took it. And he hung there before the Father with that sin. And he was so filled with shame over that sin 
that the Bible says he despised it. And then it clicked. I am filled with shame. Jesus knows exactly what that is. Times a million. In fact, it's my sin was one of the sins that caused him shame when he was hanging on the cross. And when I realized that Jesus had felt the same shame I felt, it allowed me to cry out to God and it allowed the sympathy of Christ to be effective in my life. I felt so drawn to Christ. And I said, oh, Jesus, I am so overwhelmed with shame, but I know you were too. But for the joy set before you, you endured. And through the effectiveness of his sympathy, God brought victory in my life over that sin. Um, Why did Jesus have to be born as a baby? Because sympathy demands and depends upon those common experiences. Listen, I'm thankful that Jesus was born. Aren't you? Not just that Jesus became flesh, and that's great. Not just that he died on the cross, that is wonderful. But I'm glad he came as a baby. I'm glad he came as a baby so he could live a righteous life for me. I'm glad he came as a baby so his full, sinless, righteous, sacrificial life could become the perfect substitute for my sinful, rebellious, selfish life. I'm glad he came as a baby so he could sympathize with my brokenness and my fear and my frustration and my temptation. I'm glad Jesus came as a baby. Just so your head bowed and eyes closed. Listen, there are two ways to respond to that good news. One is to trust what Christ has done, the life he's lived for you and the death that he's died for you. To trust that that's enough for the forgiveness of sins and for the righteousness that God desires to give to you. To trust that and to surrender to the Lord. If you'd like to do that, we want to help you. We want to help you. You can come down in either service and just say that to us. Let us help you take that next step. But you know, there's another response. We could just be overwhelmed and celebrate. I mean, Christmas is wonderful. But Christmas is wonderful, at least in part, because he came as a baby. That matters. And that's worth celebrating. Father in heaven, thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your one and only son to come as a baby. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we respond.